1: August already. Oh, it's almost over. I can't believe it. That's depressing. Well, let's let's not make you depressed right now. Let's lift you up with an incredible story. I want to roll back 20 years. Let's say, okay, 2001, you're looking for an electrician or a handyman for your house, hang a TV. What did you do back then? Well, you hauled out the yellow pages, right? You started calling Every single number, alphabetically, down on the electricians out there. And if you were lucky, maybe you picked up the phone and called a friend and said, you know what, do you have a good electrician I could borrow? Today, so much easier. You guys are so lucky. You download an app and you press a button. But that phrase, there's an app for that. You've heard that so many times. It's so true now. Uber, DoorDash, or Angie. Angie for all of these handymen that you need, right? Today, I am sitting down with one of those very app creators, but his story has such a unique beginning that we just had to bring it to you. O'Sheen Hanrahan grew up in a small town in Ireland and worked as a dishwasher, right? And then from there, he made it all the way to arguably one of, if not the top business schools in the world, Harvard. But he dropped out. Why would you do that? Because he had an idea he so believed in that he thought it was more worthy an investment of his time than sitting in a classroom. How worthy? Well, his idea, an app that hooked people up with handy men and women, led him to the top job, yes, CEO at a huge corporation called Angie. So how did he jump from startup to CEO Let's ask him. O'Sheen Handrahan, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz.
0: Liz, that's a great intro. That's a heck of an intro. (laughs) Can you do all my intros whenever I do anything ever? I got on all hands with the team in a few weeks. Do you think you could like, could you you step in and do my intro? Um,
1: For a small fee of multiple pounds of chocolate, I'd be happy to.
0: What kind of chocolate? What's your favorite chocolate?
1: You know what? I'm such a cheap date when it comes to that. I will do Hershey's to Teutcher. I mean, low end to high end. Anything that is on hand or stolen from somebody's desk drawer. (laughs) I love it. Uh, First of all, growing up in Ireland... I do not hear an accent right now. Did you lose it? Do you fake it? What What are you doing here? With, with I lost
0: it. I, I I think I lost it somewhere along the way. I spent a couple of years when I was uh, when I was young in Canada as well, from like age six to eight. Um, but uh, if I uh, if I drink enough whiskey or beer, I think the accent will come back out. But you can uh, do the brogue. You'll hear it on certain words, words that have a U in them, like oh and truck and book.
1: Crook. Okay. I already heard it. Okay. What, what town are you from? What, what was life like growing up in Ireland?
0: I grew up uh, outside, uh, outside a small town outside Dublin called Rathcool. Uh, it was, you know, a, a very simple, small town, a couple of thousand people, uh, local school, school bus would pick me up in front of uh, in front of the, the, the house every day. And uh, it, it was a funny one. When we moved back from Canada, uh, I thought I would, you know, go to a, an English-speaking school. But my, uh, my parents chose the school based on which school bus would pick us up in front of the school. So both my sister and I went from, uh, went from learning everything in English to learning everything in a full-on Irish school, where the only thing you learn in English is English. Uh, so I learned math and science and everything from the age of eight until about 13 all through, uh, all through Irish, having not had a word of Irish before this, which was an interesting adjustment uh, as, a, as a as an eight year old. Celtic, Irish, Gaelic, Gaelic, yeah.
1: What what is Celtic? Did I just totally embarrass myself?
0: I think Celtic is like one of those words that's not a language. It's okay. like Celtic is just like, you know, anything generally <laughs> related to Celts classifies as Celtic. But uh, but no, Irish is its own language.
1: Yeah. Wait, you must have felt like a fish out of water having to do oh, yeah,
0: everything it was, in Gaelic. It, it, I, I, I didn't know what was going on. The first few words I had to learn were, teacher, can I go to the bathroom, which I'll never forget. It's and, will Wacadagum, Bilgadi, and Laris. Which is like, you know, the first thing you need to know as an eight year old in a class is like, can I ask, go can I ask to go to the bathroom?
1: <laughs> Wait, that doesn't even sound like a shred of romance language because I speak French and a tiny bit of Spanish. And I would be able to recognize some words, but none of those sound familiar.
0: Yeah, it's a funny one.
1: Wow. That probably helped you become very sort of bendable and malleable throughout your career, I'm sure. but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. but some of the jobs that you held, we, we said dishwasher. How old were you?
0: Uh, I was probably 12 or 13, 13, 14 It was a summer. Um, yeah, it was a summer job and then an after school job it was a local uh, a local coffee shop and then a hotel and uh, I just showed up and said hey, I'm looking for some summer work and I think it was my dad that dropped me down and uh, dropped me down to the the, the the hotel and said, yeah, go in there and ask them if they'll uh, give you a job for a few hours over the summer. Uh, and then after that, I, um, after that, I started my first handyman business where I would go around to all the local, uh, the local neighbors and ask them if they needed someone to cut the grass, sweep the drive. Uh, I printed up flyers, which was like, a, you know, Back in what would have been the late 90s with word clip art uh, was probably a it.
1: <laughs> Wait, so did it have a name? Did your business no, have a, it, it, a
0: logo? It didn't, didn't have anything. It didn't even have a phone number. It just had like a flyer and like, hey, I'll call back <laughs> around to get work. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: because cell phones weren't really huge at that point. I mean, we had them, but they were big honking clunky things at that point.
0: Oh, I don't think we had cell phones in Ireland in the night, late 90s, did we? My goodness.
1: Yeah, I got my first one in 80, well, let's say 90. 88, 89. Ooh, uh, but it was attached to the car. You couldn't pull Yeah, it out. yeah, yeah, the uh, car
0: phone with the cord thing. Yeah, and the huge <laughs> cord. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: My question is growing up in that area. Tell me what kids were like. Did they have ambitions? Did they have these grand dreams of I'm going to run a corporation someday. I mean, tell me what all the kids around you were thinking and, and compare that to how you were thinking.
0: I think it was a different time. I mean, certainly a different place. I think Ireland in the nineties the was obviously very different to how it is now. I mean, I can't speak to what the the U S was like in the nineties, but no, I, I think people were, you know, most influenced probably by what their parents were doing or what they saw on TV. And Certainly, uh, certainly, back on Irish TV in the '90s, we were not glamorizing entrepreneurship or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even even leadership the way we the way we do now. Um, you know, I think the TV shows I watched. I think you know my favorite show at the time was probably Friends, which right. you know was probably four or five seasons behind what uh, what everyone here was watching. Uh, so no, I, I think it was very uh, it, it was very different.
1: But then at age twenty one. Suddenly you're starting your first real estate business in Budapest of all places. What led you to Budapest and, and how did the real estate business uh, sort of germinate in your mind and then into reality?
0: Yeah, I, I was um, so Ireland is one of the highest uh, one of the highest property ownership rates of any country in, uh, in Western Europe. and it, it dates back to it dates back to the famine when uh, when Irish people typically didn't own the land. So there's a very like strong connection between real estate ownership and, uh, and Irish culture. And it, it even exists even, even today. Um, and I worked for a year before going to college. So I worked, uh, I worked selling cardboard boxes, which is like a very fun thing to sell. Uh, and from, from there, okay, I made a little bit of money. I was quite good at selling cardboard uh, and I saved up a little bit of money and I said, okay, well, I'm going to buy an apartment, like a, a buy-to-let investment. Um, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't quite get it over the line in Ireland, but, uh, a bunch of former Eastern European countries or currently Eastern European countries, uh, had, uh, had joined the EU at the time and you could then travel to Eastern Europe and you could, uh, buy under similar, you know, similar, uh, legislation as you could in Ireland. And I went out to, went out to Poland, to, uh, Warsaw and Krakow to the Czech Republic to Prague uh, to Romania and to Hungary, to, to Budapest. And I picked Budapest. I found an apartment, I bought it. I went out uh, and spent some time there, painted it and renovated it and put it on the market to, to rent it. And it was worth more pretty much immediately because the market was just, was just going up. And I did that a few more times. And then there was one day I was out there, uh, and I was going out, you know, either weekends or, uh, uh, college vacation. Um, like when, when, I had breaks and there was one particular day I was out there, I was looking at this apartment and there was a, like a, a, a door in the ceiling, like one of those ceiling doors. And I said, what's upstairs. And they were like, ah, you, you don't need to go up there. And I was like, no, no, like let's, let's go upstairs. So we went upstairs and it was like a, it was a pretty like mediocre apartment. It was like you know, not, not, nothing to write home about. Um, and I went upstairs and there was like, 10,000 square feet of space upstairs with these giant ceilings, like 20 foot ceilings. And obviously the whole place is dark and there's nothing anywhere but pigeon poop all over the floor and like pigeons flying around. And I said, I I don't want to buy the apartment, but how do I buy this space? Um, And they said, oh, you can't buy the space. And I was like, no, no, like how do I get it? And they said, well, technically it's owned by the building. So no one owns it. I was like, I can't buy it, but no one owns it. (laughs) <laughs> All right. This, this sounds like, this sounds like communism still here, but we'll figure it out. Um, so we, um, we, we went down the path and it turned out it was right. It was owned by the building. So what, what it wasn't a particularly amazing building, but, um, yeah, as it stood, but it, it had the potential to be beautiful. And what the the people in the building wanted was, you know, their their space to be renovated. They wanted a new elevator. They wanted water, new water, electricity, new utility lines, a new facade on the building, new courtyard. And it turned out that, you know, if I could get the majority of the building to agree to that, then I could basically get the space in exchange for construction value. Um, which meant that I could build half dozen penthouses. It's probably the second most valuable space in the building after the, the retail on the ground floor um, that you could effectively get by, you know, giving the the folks in the building a you know a renovated common area. Um, and we put together a deal, and people signed off on it, and it was obviously very capital efficient as well. I didn't have a ton of money, um, but um, but it, uh, it it was a really capital efficient way because you could effectively finance the purchase of the land at the same time that you're building the 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 the, the new apartments and then I pre-sold some of them and basically got uh, went from went from buying and selling apartments to to construction and then I did I did one of those projects with a contractor and then on the second project I did the contractor went bankrupt pretty much week 2 or week 3 of the project nice so, so I ended up buying his construction company out of bankruptcy Um, And then I went from having, you know, two or three well-paid development folks to having 50 50 laborers on the ground, which was its own uh, wonderful experience, uh, and took it from there. So we did much more of those, those type of projects, and it was a ton of fun.
1: We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. You know what I'm hearing from this? I'm hearing fly by the seat of your pants. There's no (laughs) question. It's opportunity falls in your lap. Let me do it a uh, problem falls in your lap, let me turn it into an opportunity kind of thing. Am I right?
0: Look, I, I think, you know, I, I look back at some of the stuff I've done, and it, it's a question that comes up. I think there's a, an element of responding to opportunity. I think the other is like this theme of trying to do things where all the folks involved are a winner. So I, I don't like to take on projects or things where it's like, a, you know, a you win, I lose, I win, you lose. And instead I, I try and work on things where you can look at the, you can look at the, the um, you can look at the opportunity and say, all right, well, everyone's going to be a winner. So you take the Budapest thing. Well, the, the people in the building are a winner. The, you know, obviously they get a great new, uh, a great new common area and new facade and new uh, new utilities and their value, of their apartment goes up. The people in the new apartments are a winner. The local authority is a winner because the, you know, the, they increase the density of the area and, uh, it becomes more valuable um, so I, I try and think about like all right what are the projects or what are the things i'm going to take on where all the stakeholders involved are going to be uh, are going to be happy with the results mm-hmm. and i think that's you know you can be you can be opportunistic in that hey i'll see an opportunity to like do something that'll better you know just put money in my pocket i, I think you know those are not the that's not the way I've thought about opportunism. It's like, hey, how do you create these situations where everyone involved is going to walk away saying, like, yeah, that, was, that worked out well?
1: Boy, it should, be, it should be like that everywhere. But it's not. Uh, having had these successes and all of this sort of back-to-school experience, meaning the movie, where you had a very successful Rodney Dangerfield thinking he needed to go to school when he had done it all on his own anyway, why did you think you needed to apply to Harvard Business School when you mm. already were a proven business success?
0: So the, the thing I realized and the, the reason I got out of uh, of, of what I was doing in, in Budapest was I wasn't satisfied with the scale. I wasn't happy to have an impact one project at a time. And, you know, I, I thought about the rate at which I could scale uh, the rate at which I could scale what I was doing. And I thought, Hey, I, I want to go and have a bigger impact. I want to take on projects that are much larger than this. And there were two things I thought would be helpful. One was to spend a little bit of time in venture capital. So I spent the summer working with, uh, with Excel in London. Um, and then the second was to go back to business school and, you know, really, really think about, you know, how to learn, how, um, how people who were used to operating on a much larger scale, think about their problems, think about their teams, think about, you know, how to, how to approach, how to approach those opportunities as they, as they come by. Um, And yeah, I was obviously very happy, very grateful to get into, to, to get into HBS and um, really enjoyed the, the, the year that I was there Um, and then, and then started Handy.
1: Well, that's where this story really starts to take a fascinating turn. You're, in business school, and you've got itchy feet, you, you start Handy, which is an app, obviously, for hooking people up with Handy people, whatever they need. Boy, I need somebody to hang up my bird house right now. I really do. And I can't. I mean, my husband, we're Jewish. We can't do it. Um, And so I sort of feel like You're I need to case? go on the You're app. You're do it? <laughs> Absolutely not. I, I needed two of my friends who ran my home studio to put up my mezuzah last week. Don't even ask. Um, Yeah. We're not handy with the drill, although I'm sure there's some we're not going to generalize, but let's just start with starting the app while you're in school and what triggered your idea to drop out of Harvard.
0: Yeah. So I, what started the, the idea was, I knew from the time that I spent in Budapest how hard it was to organize contractors to do small things. So when we would sell apartments, you'd always get people that would call after you'd sell the apartment and say, hey, actually, uh, I want to get something changed in the apartment. I want to get this room painted. You know, that door that I told you to put in, I actually wanted to get the, I wanted I wanted to get open the other way, or I want to make an adjustment. I want to move a wall slightly. I want to you know rearrange the kitchen. Uh, so I was you know, used to these like small tasks that were really a pain. Like they're not large enough for a contractor to say, great, I'll put a crew back on it for half a week. Like, great. We'll take care of it. It's like, Oh, that's really only going to be like a four or five or six or eight hour job, or maybe a day, day and a half. Um, so I knew how hard it was to do those tasks and do those jobs. And then I, I was in Boston and I just, I had this constant like sensation that people were you know, constantly asking, Hey, I'm looking for a handyman to put up a TV or I'm looking for, you know, someone to, to, to do a small amount of work. Um, and I thought, Hey, I, I think I can fix that. I think, you know, in the current environment, if you you know rewind back to 2012, 2011, 2012, um, you, know, you were just starting to see Uber take off. You were just starting to see Airbnb hit critical mass. And the thing that I thought was people are going to book these home services online. People are going to take out their phone or go to their, uh, go to their laptop and they're going to press a button and they're not going to go through a back and forth of bidding and phone calls and all this shenanigans for small tasks. They're just going to pick up the phone or pick up their, their, their mobile and press a button and make the booking. And we, we started with that idea and, you know, put up a really what I would describe as a pretty terrible site online uh, <laughs> under under a you know a pretty mediocre name. It was Handybook at the time, Handybook.com. <laughs> um, oh, you you'll 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 you're you're laughing at that. The backup name, if we couldn't get the Handybook na- name, was Chorestar, which is an even more embarrassing oh, name. Lame. Like, I, I don't even know. What I, lame. In what world we thought that would be a good name? Like, like goodness. <laughs> anyway, uh, so so we um, we started with that and put up a really bad site, and people made bookings uh, pretty much immediately. So, you know, we put up some flyers, and very quickly people were like, yep, that's what I want. I want to book a handyman for four hours. I thought, all right, well, the the consumer site is there. We can't deliver on any of these bookings, so turn the site off quickly. Um, (laughs) And then we said, all right, let's try to find some handy people. Let's try to find, you know, so it was cleaning and handy people. Uh, so we put up some ads online and said, "Hey, do you, you want to work like as a handyman or a cleaner for I think it was fifteen or twenty or twenty-five bucks an hour?" Uh, and there was one fine day where I don't know. We put up an ad. We got a couple of hundred responses saying, "Yeah, um, of a job. Let me let me you know come and apply." And we said, "I don't know if any of these people are going to show up. Let's text them." So there was I think it was a Friday afternoon. We said, "All right, you know what we'll do? We'll text." 150 of them, and tell them to show up. And originally, we thought, hey, well, why don't we ask them to show up in like, you know, a structured format, like every 20 minutes for like interviews, and we'll interview them and see who's good and who's not. But we uh, apparently didn't do that. Instead, we just sent a message to 150 people telling them all to show up exactly <laughs> at the same time. Uh, and what happened next was we were walking. My co-founder uh, Omong and I were walking. Uh, from our apartment over to uh, where we told them to show up. So at business school, there was one of those fancy innovation labs with lots of glass and chrome and people sitting around writing on whiteboards. Um, so we're walking over to the innovation lab at nine o'clock or eight 50 in the morning. We're in a little late uh, and I see a crowd outside and I'm like, I wonder what that crowd is. It's a you know an interesting mix of people. And as we get closer, I hear people you know say, "Handy book, here for handy book." I'm like, oh, <gasps> I think that might be our problem." And uh, as I get closer, I see security like saying, "Like, all right, just calm down, just just chill out." Um, and I go to the top of the the, the crowd. And I'm like, "Hey, like, I think you know all these people might actually be here for me." <laughs> uh, and like, well, then you're in a lot of trouble, um, but you're going to have to talk to the head of security and you're going to have to talk to the Dean after this, uh, because this is not what this innovation lab is for. And I'm like, I'm definitely innovating today. Uh, trust <laughs> me. <laughs> That's
1: precisely <laughs> what it should be for. No wonder you left Harvard business school.
0: <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, we, we, we did have to, you know, apologize to some folks and, uh, they, they were very kind about the whole thing. Um, but yeah, so that was, you know, that, that proved out the other side of the model, right? People would make bookings online and you know what? You'll text folks, they'll show up. Um, and uh, we we started with that idea. We met a bunch of great cleaners and handymen that day uh, and started actually taking some of the bookings. We turned the site back on and uh, and started the process of, of, of matching consumers that wanted to, to to get work done in their home with pros that wanted to do the work and there was no technology involved. You know, it was all super manual. It was phone calls and text messages. And, you know, it was, I think at one point we had a big whiteboard that, you know, we would, you'd put your fancy order in online and then we would take it offline and write on the whiteboard. Um, and then we would text somebody to, to to show up and do the work. And eventually we'd charge your credit card um, and we raised a little bit of money. Uh, and then we scaled it and raised a little bit more money. And that was when we, um, Made the decision to drop out. I, you know, we 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 spent the summer, my, my co-founder and I spent the summer uh, you know, basically saying, Hey, we're all in on this. This would have been the summer between first and second year at business school, saying, Hey, we're all in on this. And every Friday we would get together and you know, for an hour we would say, All right, do we have any more data points to tell us like, hey, we should do this? So it was this like almost bipolar behavior of 99% of the time, like, we're doing this, we're absolutely all in. And then, you know, one hour a week, we'd get together and say, all right, do we actually believe that this is the right thing to do? Like, are we, are, are we, um, are we, you know, diluting ourselves? Do we have more data? Do we have less data? And I, and I think it's important to do that, right? Because a lot of people spend a lot of time wrapped around the axle of like constantly questioning whether they should be doing what they're doing, as opposed to going, you know, 150% for the vast majority of the time, but setting aside a little bit of time, you know, on a regular basis, uh, you know, either by themselves or with, with, with the, uh, you know, a colleague or friend or a peer uh, to take a step back and ask, "Hey, is this what I should be doing?" And I think that's you know that was one of the most that was probably one of the most significant um, things that we did in terms of framing up the, "Hey, are we doing this or not doing it?" And then, oh, we should, what
1: did you know in your heart that it was going to fly? Meaning, you you had a little bit of buffer of profit, maybe, and you realized. We are really cooking with gas at this point.
0: I don't know. I I don't remember a moment when I was like, oh, this is going to work. I don't remember like a distinct moment in time um, Mm -hmm. where I was like, hey, this is going to work. I I think it's like, uh, you know, there's a... there are lots of moments I think that add up to, all right, I think this is going to work. I don't know. Is it like the first time a customer pays you the first time, you know, a pro sends you a message and says, Hey, like, I mean, I, I recall the, you know, the the first kind message I got from a pro who worked on the platform that said, Hey, you know, I, I just wanted to drop you a note. Um, you probably don't know who I am. You probably don't know like m- much about you know my circumstances, but working on handy this, Uh, this week helped me make my rent. So it's like, Oh, wow, this is a thing that we're doing. That's making a difference. Um, And I, you know, I recall the first time a pro dropped by our office uh, with, uh, with cupcakes, you know, and we, we didn't, you know, pros didn't show up at the office on a regular basis. It wasn't like, Hey, I drop in to get my schedule, but a pro dropped by and said, Hey, I just wanted to like drop by and say, thanks. Like you're, you're, you're helping make a difference for, uh, for my family, like, here's like a a gift for you. And we like, we can't take the cupcakes, like let us pay you for them. But, um, but, uh, it it was, yeah, I guess there were these moments along the way where you realize, Hey, we're helping people take care of their homes, but also we're helping a lot of people, uh, earn money.
1: This is everyone talks to Liz and we'll be right back.
2: Hey folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's list, your go-to home services.
1: your original thought in Budapest where you didn't just want to be, you lose, I win. You wanted to make sure all pieces of the puzzle were going to fit and at least come out feeling right. And and I think that is that is such good karma. I love it. And, and you've got to talk to me about how the Angie deal came out because Angie was a much bigger company and they come to you and they say, we want to buy you and you end up running the whole shoot and match. How did that happen?
0: Yeah. Um, look, we've been obviously having a slightly different business model to Angie for, for, you know, whatever it was, six or seven years. Um, and, uh, you know, every now and again, I get together with Joey, who's the CEO of IAC, uh, which owns a a large amount of Angie and, um, he would tell me why the Angie business model was better. And I tell him why the handy business model was better. And, you know, I think at the end of, at the end of that, one of those conversations, he said, you know, it would be even better than the handy business model being separate and the Angie business model being separate. He said, well, if both business models were together, you could actually serve even more customers and help even more pros. And I said, "Eh, I don't know if that's a good idea. Um, And uh, we, you know, we kicked it around for a little bit and realized, you know, he was right uh, and, um, we explored what it would look like. And, uh, we, some other people we were talking to at the same time, and we, you know, got very excited about the, the opportunity at Angie. And, you know, even within that, uh, it was, you know, it it was not explicit, Hey, we we want you to be CEO. It was, you know, Hey, why don't you run handy within Angie, see if it's a good fit and we'll find a, a bigger role for you. So, Shortly after that, I took on running Handy and all the product um, uh, and engineering for 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 the larger organization. So, all the product digital product teams that ran the mobile app and the site and all that fun stuff. Um, and when I was taking that responsibility on, we you know we're kicking around. Hey, well, why don't you come into the board and present on uh, where where you want to take Angie? Like, what, what could a bigger vision for Angie look like? like we get that we have a lead business and an ad business, but what what does it really mean to 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 go after this big opportunity like there's a massive opportunity to say like why is there not a much bigger company that actually helps people really get the things done inside their home that they need um, I came in I spoke to the board and you know they they got excited about that vision and you know when the time came to to, to have a bigger conversation um, they were you know very supportive of of, of taking Angie in a much bigger direction. And really, instead of having, you know, three different brands as Angie's List, HomeAdvisor, and Handy, but having one main brand as Angie and having one single app and having, you know, a, a single membership product and, uh, really investing in the customer experience and not saying, Hey, we're going to make a dollar more today for revenue or EBITDA instead saying, Hey, we're going to actually invest a lot more. And we're going to think about this as a five to 10 year journey. And we're you know, really going to think about what does it mean to, to what does it mean to put our customers and pros first, um, which I, you know, is a, is a big, scary thing to, it's easy to say, but it's a big, scary thing to go and do because you got to take, you know, all that hard-earned EBITDA and all that hard-earned profit. And you got to say, Hey, we're actually going to invest most of that back in the customer experience and the customer journey. Mm-hmm. We're going to invest most of it back in, you know, bringing on more pros. We're going to invest most of it back and figure out how to win the category. And I think people got really excited about that. And um, you know, I got into more of the specifics and said, hey, this means we're going to have a mission for the first time. You know, at Handy, there was a mission, but at Angie, broadly, there was, there was not a mission. I said, we're going to put out a mission. It's going to be scary. And uh, then we're going to put out values. You know, again, we, we didn't have a set of values that we we worked by. And they, they you know, the, the board was like, yeah, that that makes sense. <laughs> that's, that's what we're looking for. And I said, okay, but we'll have to live by the values. And they said, no, no, we, we get that. Like, that that's exactly what we want. And I said, okay. Um, and we, we kicked it around and um, I got excited about it and they were excited about it. And I said, yeah, let's do this.
1: O'Sheen, what is your advice to people who are listening right now who think, well, I have an idea, but oh, this, this sounds like such an exhausting prospect, all he went through. And now, yeah, he's a CEO, but you know, how do you get people over the hump of fear of taking that flying leap?
0: So, uh, I think a lot of people um, benefit from having a lot of clarity in what the idea is. So the, there's there's this there's this idea of writing down. If you've got an idea, right, you probably believe something about the world or about some group of people that the rest of the world hasn't yet figured out. So whether it's you're inside a company or you're starting a business. And I'll give you an example. So at Handy, the thing we believe that we wrote down was we believe people are going to buy home services online. sounds, you know, it's 2021. That's stupid obvious. 10 years ago, apparently that wasn't obvious because, you know, the vast majority of venture capitalists and VCs we spoke to said, no, there's no way people are going to do that. That's crazy. No one's going to put in their credit card and have a person show up at their home. That's nuts. Um, So... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it sounds obvious now, but apparently it wasn't. Um, But I think most people benefit from writing that down. So write down what's the, what's the thing you believe to be true that the world doesn't yet realize and the world can be like the people in your company, you know, the, you know, there's a lot of great stuff happening with, you know, people uh, being entrepreneurial within companies. So it doesn't have to be, you know, starting your own thing. And then the second thing is, Once you've written it down, don't second guess it. Spend most of your time trying to prove or disprove that thing. Set aside dedicated time, you know, once a week or once a month to say, hey, does this thing actually make any sense anymore? But the vast majority of the time, don't second guess yourself. Don't like wonder about it. Just go full tilt, you know, pedal to the floor, proving or disproving that thing. Um, because I think a lot of it, as you, as you said, is emotional. It's about figuring out how to take that leap. Um, and it's easier to take that leap if you written it down. So you can wake up every morning, you know, inside my notebook, I got five goals that I you know, wrote down at the start of the year. And I start every day by taking out my notebook and going, oh my goodness, do any of these five goals actually match my calendar? Oh my goodness, they don't. I'm going to drive, you know, my assistant crazy today by canceling a bunch of stuff on my calendar. But yeah, I, I think a lot of it is, um, a lot of it is figuring out the clarity of thought to say, like, what are each of the words that I believe to be true that the rest of the world doesn't yet know?
1: We like to let people leave this podcast with a map. And you just gave us one that honestly, you know, we've done about 125 of these, maybe even more so far. This was started as a dream. The everyone talks to Liz podcast. and, And here we are now with more than 125 in the pretty much the largest audio library of American dream success stories. But we've heard a lot of amazing stories. We haven't heard it put just like you did. And I am so appreciative and so thankful for you taking the time out to offer that up as a gift to our listeners. Thank you so much, O'Sheen. We are wishing you the best of luck and the future and and many birdhouses and televisions hung with success.
0: You're too kind. Thank you so much. Uh, let let us know uh, where you're at and we'll send someone over to, uh, <laughs> to hang the birdhouse.
1: Only if they can teach me. I need to do this on my own at some point.
0: Oh, no, she no, Let us do it for you. You don't need to do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, you pay people to do that. You call Angie, you call Angie. That's yeah. great stuff. Thank you so much. Good luck to you. Thank you. Thanks, Liz. All right. So you guys know where to go if you need the the picture frame hung or the uh, the television or, in my case, the birdhouse that my brother so kindly made me with his own bare hands. Yeah, a, 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 a Jew no less. Yeah, he made it himself. Thank you guys, as always, for tuning in. And we always have more up our sleeves. So thank you very much. And uh, Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox Biz. You know where to find me right there. The and
0: Countdown. Have a great day.